If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Robin has reached the three-quarter mark in his sermon series on our book study. Today, we look at Judaism to see what it might teach us about holy envy. The class continues this afternoon at 4 o'clock and the final field trip to the Islam Society of Oklahoma City is this coming Wednesday at 4 o'clock. This morning, I want to read three passages that stress the importance of welcoming the stranger in Judaism. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I, the Lord, am your God. Leviticus 19, 33, 34. When you reap the harvest in your field and overlook a sheaf in the field, do not turn back to get it. It shall go to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. Deuteronomy 24:19. You and the stranger shall be alike before the Lord. Numbers 15, 15b. Here ends this reading from our tradition. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Over three decades ago, the phone rang back in my office here at church, and on the other end of the line, the voice of Rabbi David Pakman from Temple B'nai Israel. His question was simple. Robin, welcome to town. Is it true that you're a liberal? (laughs) That would be right, I said, to which he responded, how long do you think you will last? I said, I don't know, I don't know, but I could sure use a rabbi. That's funny, he said, because I could sure use a liberal Protestant pastor myself. I'm looking for a friend in the church that I know won't try to convert me. Because really, Robin, a liberal Christian is the best friend a Jew can have. You are our righteous Gentile. I'm calling to see if we can establish a special working relationship between Mayflower and the temple. That would be great, I said, 
and for the next 25 years, we did so many things together. Bible study, social justice initiatives, press conferences, political advocacy, pulpit exchanges, sex ed classes for our fifth and sixth graders, the interfaith Thanksgiving service, and so much more. During those years, in fact, I did not have a closer relationship with any member of the Christian clergy. David was my colleague and friend, and so, when my daughter, Chelsea, got married, she said to me, Dad, I, I want you to walk me down the aisle, but not try to officiate the service, because let's face it, neither one of us will get through it. <laughs> so I said, Chelsea, you're right, and I want to walk you down. How would you feel about Rabbi Pacman officiating your wedding? That would be great, she said. And so it was. Local Christian clergyman's daughter married by local rabbi. <laughs> I walked Chelsea down the aisle, then David took over, blending elements of our two traditions together. Chelsea and Jason even took a sip of the glass, wrapped it, it was down on the ground, and they smashed it on the floor. And to this day, people think my son-in-law is Jewish. <laughs> But what we were doing really was having a wedding in what should be the closest extended family in the Abrahamic tradition, celebrating the very special bond we share between Jews and the Jewish Jesus. And to be honest, there wasn't a Christian minister in town in those days I trusted to perform the wedding of my daughter. I'd heard too many of them launch into speeches about what the odds of this marriage really surviving is, or maybe veering off into diatribes on the evils of fornication. I just couldn't take that chance. From that smashed glass on the floor, however, has come two of our three granddaughters, Hazel and Eleonora. And although I see much less of David these days, who's had some serious health scares, Sean and I will always remember that charmed night in early May when we did not play by the rules. Because the rules are meant to be broken if the rules are keeping us apart. Would that the last 20 centuries of Jewish-Christian relations could have been as joyful. But the truth is there's no fight like a family fight and no divorce like one where you're arguing over who gets the Messiah or the holy city of Jerusalem, or what it really means to love the Gentile, or whether chosenness, whether in Christianity or Judaism, can possibly end well. David and I used to say that Christians must find a place for the Jews in their theology, and then I would add, and the Jews must find a place for Palestinians in theirs. And he agreed. But over the quarter century that we were friends, things got worse and worse and worse in the Middle East. So let's begin with confession. In her book, Holy Envy, Barbara Brown Taylor puts it well. When she taught her unit on Judaism, she said, quote, my faith tradition took its hardest hit for two reasons. The first was that teaching the basics of Jewish belief and practice gave me a chance to measure how far Christianity had moved from where it started. By the end of the first century, the religion of Jesus had become the religion about Jesus, 
so that even he might have been alarmed by what his followers had done. When had the faith of his ancestors become the adversary? When had people turned his lifelong faith in the one and only Father to a new faith in the one and only Son? The second reason comes directly from the first, namely, how much hatefulness I had absorbed about Jews from Christian scripture and from our tradition, she said. One of the most important rules about interfaith study we've learned in class is this. When trying to understand another religion, you should ask the adherents of that religion and not its enemies. When I did that, Barbara said, I found much to envy as well as a dose of holy shame for belonging to the religion that had done theirs so much harm. On a recent Friday night, our Mayflower class gathered in the sanctuary at Temple B'nai Israel for a Shabbat service. It was right between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the highest of the Jewish high holy days. It was called Shabbat Shuva, a celebration of return. And Rabbi Harris did a lot of explaining during the service because she knew the room was full of clueless Christians. But she confessed it was also a great way to teach her own congregation about what was really happening without insulting them. <laughs> we read our service book from back to front, which the rabbi said is not the backwards way, just the Hebrew way. And we listened to the cantor and the kids came and went, and anniversaries and birthdays were celebrated. And as we sat there, we realized that although some things are clearly different in the modern age, we were in fact listening to the melodies and the intonations and the ceremonies with which Jesus would have been so familiar. In other words, we were at a family reunion. Oh, there was a lot of page turning, a lot of getting up and down. I mean up and down and up and down. Episcopalians have nothing on Jews when it comes to standing, sitting, standing, sitting. But when the doors of the ark were opened to reveal the ornate coverings on the Torah, the, five, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, that is the most sacred object in Judaism, it made quite an impression on us Gentiles. Then it is quite literally undressed and later redressed and and it's walked around the sanctuary multiple times and people touch their service books and bow, much as Christians do in high church traditions when the gospel gets paraded around the sanctuary. Of course, all my idolatry bells went off again because remember, I was raised in the churches of Christ and too much attention to an object, any object, instead of the idea behind the object, well, that's idolatry. But what a marvelous thing we all learned about worship at the temple. It was the way in which the reading and interpreting of the Torah passage is new every time the scroll is unrolled. The Torah, the Torah is a living document. There is nothing static, nothing literal, nothing fixed about it for all time. Jews practice midrash, the continuous retelling and reinterpretation of the text as a way of life. So every time the scroll is opened, it may contain a message no one's ever heard before, one that fits that particular moment. I've, I felt some holy envy about this because so many Christians are so fearful of any change in the message. 
When we say in this place that God is still speaking, we are confessing to the need to do Christian midrash because no Jew would ever put a bumper sticker on her car that said, the Torah says it, we believe it, and that settles it. No. What Dr. Taylor also taught us is how unconscious is so much of our anti-Semitism. The most common question her students would ask her in class is one we've all heard growing up in church. So why don't Jews believe that Jesus was the Messiah? I mean, he was right there in front of them, in the flesh, so how could they not see what God was doing? One student asked her, why don't they believe what he said about himself? The underlying assumption here is that all Jews are hostile to Jesus because that's what we've learned from the Bible. It never occurred to this student, Dr. Taylor said, that there might be good Jewish reasons to decide that Jesus was just not the Messiah. The same way there might be good Christian reasons to decide that neither Sung Young Moon nor David Koresh was the Christian Messiah. In fact, how many Christians today know that Jews have their own list of authoritative scriptures about the Messiah, so they'll know the Messiah when the Messiah comes. And as it turns out, according to this list, Jesus simply did not do what Jewish scripture said a Messiah should do. He did not restore Jerusalem. He did not rebuild the temple. He did not usher in the age of peace on earth with wolves and lambs lying down together. In other words, Jews do not believe that Jesus is a bad person. They just think he was not the Messiah. As a Messiah, he failed. While we believe that as a Messiah, he succeeded. What's more, it is good to listen to Jews tell us how often we use the language of contempt without even realizing it. When we say the burden of the law, for example, or the righteousness of the Pharisees, our listeners hear that the law is bad but grace is good and that all Pharisees are self-righteous. Now it's true that Jesus did call some Pharisees a brood of vipers that devoured widows' houses. But he was not referring to all Pharisees any more than today we might condemn the greedy manipulations of a televangelist without assuming for a minute that we're talking about all evangelists. The truth is that so much of the New Testament was written by people at odds with the Judaism of their time that their anti-Semitism was baked into the Gospels. This is especially true when it comes to the crucifixion stories, especially the so-called blood curse in Matthew's gospel, in which at the trial, Pilate washes his hands and then says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Look to it yourselves. And then it continues, quote, and the whole people said in reply, his blood be upon us and upon our children, end quote. This was so widely interpreted to implicate the Jews in the death of Jesus that in a 1543 treatise by Martin Luther called On the Jews and Their Lies, Luther calls for the burning of synagogues and Jewish homes. At the famous passion play in the German village called Oberammergau, performed since 1634, Good Christians are confronted by evil Jews in a melodrama that is rife with anti-Semitism. 
After performances, Jews were often attacked and even killed. That melodrama played for centuries until the country in which it was played finally regarded the elimination of Jews in the Holocaust as the final solution. But the truth is, Rome killed Jesus using Jewish political proxies, just as the state of Oklahoma kills death row inmates using political appointees and a criminal justice system that does not represent all Oklahomans. Reform Jews oppose the death penalty, as do many followers of the Jewish reformer named Jesus. Yet the myth continues, and it's the deadliest of them all, the Jews killed Christ. It is standard propaganda among white supremacists, including yet another who intended to commit mass murder in a synagogue in Germany last Wednesday on Yom Kippur. And had it not been for a locked door, would have killed far more. Years ago, when Mayflower and the temple first began their long relationship, there were no armed guards outside the temple. When we visited this time, there were two armed guards outside the door. And who can blame them? At Charlottesville, they chanted in a torchlight parade that looked like some surreal modern Nazi propaganda film, Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. That's not only frightening, it's also strange since Jews do not try to convert non-Jews and they are the smallest of the world's religions. Now if one chooses to convert to Judaism, the rabbi is supposed to send you away three times to discourage conversion because it's a long ordeal, requires a new name and a new identity. In so much of Christianity, mostly it just requires a checklist of beliefs and then to write a check. In fact, this is the most important single thing to know about Judaism other than that Hebrew is difficult language and that Friday night worship can play havoc with high school football. But Jews are not people of belief. They are people of practice, praxis. And it's what you do that counts, not what you believe that you should do that counts. And what's truly strange about this as, um, well, let me back up and say this. In Oklahoma, if you ask our youth group to talk about what kinds of questions they're asked at school about being Christian, they sound like this. Do you believe in the virgin birth and the physical resurrection? Do you believe the Bible's the inerrant word of God? Do you believe Jesus is the only way to God? And what's strange about this, as Dr. Taylor points out, is that this supposedly orthodox checklist does not date from the first century, but from the early 20th century, when the Bible Institute of Los Angeles published a series of essays to establish the so-called fundamentals of Christian belief. If only they had spent as much time on the fundamentals of Christian practice. Just once, Dr. Taylor continued, I want to hear different questions from my students when they are investigating the piety of their friends. Questions like these. How does being a Christian change your way of life? What's the hardest part about loving your neighbor as yourself? What is your favorite way to pray? There is no Nicene Creed in Judaism no mandatory set of beliefs so they don't argue over such things. The closest thing may be the Shema, 
which begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Jesus would later add, and your neighbor as yourself. But he didn't come up with that in a vacuum. As Beverly read to you three examples of, there are 92 passages in the Hebrew scriptures alone that relate to how one is to treat the stranger as if the stranger is us. As if, in the eyes of God, we are all neighbors who just live at different distances from one another. It's also interesting to note that the first command is to listen. Listen, O Israel. Listen. Hear, not speak. It makes you wonder how Christianity might benefit by putting hearing God ahead of being heard by God. What do we think will happen if we stop talking? saith the preacher. <laughs> the Buddhists would say that whether you're listening to a singing bowl or meditating in a state of divine emptiness, the spiritual life, as Henry Nouwen put it, is the holding open of empty space. If Jesus had a complaint about the Judaism of his time, it would seem to be that one could agree to all the right rules but still lack an essential compassion that transcends those rules. In this sense, he was no different from the long line of Jewish prophets that came before him that warned his people, ceremony can never take the place of compassion. In fact, such pretending stinks in the nostrils of God because you know that's how prophets like to talk. Every time I'm at the temple, and I'm caught up in the melodies of the Hebrew words and phrases washing over me, the names for God, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, El Shaddai, and the greetings in worship, Shabbat Shalom, and the words of blessing, Lakayim and Mazel Tov. I'm reminded that these are the same words that Jesus heard growing up, and I wonder sometimes why the early Jesus people decided that they had to divorce their own parents and grandparents and then later consider them lost. Would that we could stop arguing over Jesus and make him for the Jews like an elder brother even as for Christians, his family would be our family. We may claim that he is for us the definitive revelation of the love of God. That's fine. But that choice does not mean we can't live with each other anymore. If we could just stop trying to convert other people to our way of thinking and just work harder at trying to embody the love we've been taught, we could all still be working in the same vineyard harvesting the same fruits of the spirit and then making a stand against the empire, whether the Pax Romana or the Pax Americana. I grieve that both Christianity and Judaism are at risk of losing their own souls. The former by obsession with theological purity, the latter by a Zionist ethic of religious purity. The rabbi and I have disagreed over some things, especially lately, but she said to me, one thing, Robin, we can all agree on. All of us want Benjamin Netanyahu to be over and gone as much as you all want the nightmare of Donald Trump to be over and gone, because none of us can be at our best when our leaders are at their worst.
in the end, you know, we need each other. We cannot afford to be separated from one another. And for starters, this relationship between Mayflower and the temple, it must endure. Why? Because we have two equally vital challenges. The Jews are family. The Palestinians are neighbors. Any questions? Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.